Today I am talking with a detective from a San Diego County agency. He started his career in law enforcement 15 years ago with the Seattle Police Department. We discuss his current role in robbery investigations. He shares some very interesting stories of working undercover in Seattle. We talk about the impact of line of duty deaths and the difficulty of the national negative environment for law enforcement. And as I always do, I ask him about the rewards of the job, the people he remembers, and just why he became a police officer. Detective, welcome. Thank you for being on my podcast. Thanks for having me on your show. I'd love to start out with details on your current role. I work robbery investigations with a local agency here in the San Diego County now. Okay, so I usually pride myself on knowing these things. My law enforcement audience will know this, of course, but for my fellow civilians, robbery, burglary, and home invasion are three different things, right? Correct. And it's funny that you mentioned that. People are always saying, I got robbed. Yeah. And, that, and then when they say that, they got home from work and someone had entered their house. And like you said, that's actually a burglary. Uh, but yeah, robbery is a forceful taking of property or services from another person. So, you know, some, somebody pointing a gun at you saying, you know, give me all your cash or something like that. So, and you have the home invasions like you were talking about that we work as well. And that's when somebody comes into your home and robs you and uh, using force. And so you do robbery and home invasion, but not burglary. Right. Why did they leave out burglary? Because it's not involving any kind of physical threat? Right, because it's a property crime in the state of California. So we'll do robberies, home invasions, kidnaps, and carjackings. Kidnapping sounds intense. It is uh, very interesting to work. What is that like and what are some typical scenarios? Uh, it's interesting because all kidnappings are different. We get the sexual assault ones, you have the domestic violence ones, you have the child ones, and then you have the immigration-related ones as well. Especially in Southern California, we, someone will be paying to come across the border. And then when they get across the border, their kidnappers want more money and they'll hold them against their wealth. And at this point, has the person been found or are you part of finding the victim? No, normally we only go out if the person has not been found. What's that like? I mean, how do you track somebody down? If you're using anything, any leads you can follow up on. And, you know, we're looking for family members, previous locations. We can find a cell phone number. It's, it's difficult in this day and age to get cell phone information, but lo luckily during an emergencies like this, we can still file for emergency court documents to, to go up on somebody's phone and find them. So we use a lot of cell phone technology or computer technology and, you know, social media apps and anything that we can find so we can get a safe, you know, peaceful res resolution. And how often are you able to find the person since I've been doing it, we've been very, I don't know if I want to call it lucky, but very lucky. But, you know, they don't come around that often. So anybody listening, don't think that you're just going to get kidnapped out of the blue out of the, out of the, the grocery store. That's not what really happens. But since I've been in the unit, we've been very lucky and we're at 100%. So. And this is one of the things I've learned. I mean, it can be stranger abduction, but it is often someone known to the person. Correct. Very few violent crimes are, are stranger victims. You know, we have the people that get caught up in the drug world. You have people that get caught up in the gang world. And so you're right. Yeah, it's not it's not strangers very often. Right. Which does make me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and the same goes for home invasion. Yeah, that's in my experience with home invasions. It's It's normally been a friend of a friend, you know, especially with the gang world and the narcotics, you know, if, you're, if your kids get caught up in something, they tell their friends or their friends know that you have jewelry or... 
right? You know, a private business or something like that. So most of the home invasions we've had have been friends of friends or an acquaintance of some way, but very few times is it a a stranger home invasion robbery. Which also makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) And then robbery, that has to happen quite a bit, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, the commercial robberies and even the ped robberies, you know, they happen quite often, uh, unfortunately. So we do get those quite a bit, which has been interesting during this COVID situation with the businesses being closed. You know, we've actually, for a while, we saw a lot less uh, robberies here in in Southern California, but we're actually seeing a lot more carjackings for some reason. And when you say ped robbery, is that pedestrian or... Right. Yeah. So we, we classify them into commercial or ped robberies, which it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody walking down the street, but you know, the commercial or the business, somebody comes into a business with a gun or a knife or mm. something. And then the, the other ones are, are personal. And of all these that you've investigated, are there any that have stuck with you either in a dramatic way or in a good way? Yeah, you have a, a lot that stick with you. I think through my whole career, everything, you know, you think every intersection you go to or every house you pass, like, oh my gosh, I remember being there. But since I've been in the unit, you know, I've had two, the very first kidnap investigation I work had stuck with me. And then uh, the very first robbery that I took, uh, a commercial robbery ended up becoming a uh, countywide series. So I'll never forget those two those two cases. Tell me about the kidnapping. The first kidnapping I, I ever went on was a uh, immigration style one. They they had kidnapped the person who was coming across. They demanded more money, you know, and then had held them against his will. And that's one that's I won't talk about a lot right now, just because it's still going to court. But it uh, it was you know the poor guy was held for a long time and and uh, trying to get him back and figure out where everything was was just a very interesting uh, experience to to work on. So in this case, they were able to find him and... On that one, he had escaped from the from the captors, and then we worked it from that point. And then the robbery, you said, stuck with you because... Uh, it ended up becoming a countywide series, yeah. How did you solve that? A pattern of behavior? Or... Exactly, yeah. The pattern of behavior, the locations they were, were going on, you know, video these days are much better than it used to be. So you're just trying to track vehicles and the locations, the, the type of locations they're hitting. Right. I want to take a step back and talk about how you started out in your career. Tell me about why you became a police officer to start with. Well, you know, I've wanted to be a police officer since I was a kid, actually. I My family moved to a small town in Arizona and there was... Um, some people in our neighborhood that were causing some issues, not to me, they were, I mean, you know, they weren't bullying me or my family, but it made, as a small kid, it made you scared to go outside, scared to go ride your bike. What kind of bullying was going on? They're probably high school age or, or maybe just out of high school. And they were throwing rocks at cars. They were close to the, the local schools. So the kids that walked home kind of had to walk through that neighborhood. And for me as a kid, that was just like, you know, scary. <laughs> and there was a, a local police officer there that was a, a friend of the family. And he used to just drive through the neighborhood a couple times during his shift. He would wave at us and keep going. It made a world of difference. And that's all he really did. But I just remember as a kid going, wow, that's, a, you know, it's amazing that, that this guy would go out of his way to make sure that, that we're safe in our neighborhood. And it just really made me want to be a, a police officer at a young age. You know, then in high school, they did like an on-the-job training day. So they actually had me go do a ride-along with a local police department. And after that, I was hooked. Yeah. 
after high school, I went in the military, and then when I got out, we were up in the Washington area, so I just stayed there and I applied for Seattle PD and I worked there for, for several years. I talked to another officer who said his first ride-along sealed the deal for him. So what was it about the ride-along that sold it for you? It was just being being around the rest of the officers and seeing the work they were doing and you know the camaraderie that was there and the, how much they cared for the community and it, it was fun but it was also you're helping it you actually get to make a difference it was just an immediate hook so often officers say that they do this because they want to make a difference exactly and that's you know getting to to see the faces of the people that you've helped and the people you get to meet and the people you get to see is it are people you'll never forget i remember being in court before I left Seattle, this woman came up to me and she's like, do you remember me? And I'm like, I, I'm sorry, I don't. And she's like, you arrested me. She's like, when you were working undercover, I sold narcotics to you and your team. And uh, it was the worst day of my life. And I was like, um, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. She's like, no, I'm actually, I'm actually thankful. It's the best thing that ever could have happened to me. And I've never had anybody tell me that, you know, you arrested me for a felony and it's the best thing that ever happened. But she said that, you know, that was the lowest point in her life. She had lost her kids. She was kind of in and out of halfway houses and on the street and selling drugs to make money. And she said that getting arrested and getting into drug court up there in Seattle was the best thing that ever happened to her. She was able to turn her life around. She got housing outside the city, which is, you know, when you're stuck in that environment, being downtown is never a good thing. And then she was able to get housing. She was able to get clean and she was able to get her kids back. So by the time I talked to her, she was back to having a family. And so, you know, things like that are, are moments you'll never forget. And that's why I got into law enforcement right there. Exactly. And people don't think about, especially these days, law enforcement, police officers making that kind of a difference in someone's life. You mentioned you went into the military? Yes. I had a plan of going to college and going straight into law enforcement from there. But I, had, I grew up with a twin brother, and he was going into the Marine Corps. And his recruiter constantly would be like, so? So? When are you signing up? And I was like, listen, I'm not. That's not part of my plan. You know, I want to be a, a police officer for my entire life. You know, I'm going to college. I'm going to be a cop. And he would pester me and then kind of stop for a while. And before my brother went to boot camp, I was working in high school at a, for a mortgage company. And I remember seeing a uniform walk by my window. The lady that was my manager came back and she's like, hey, there's a Marine here to see you. I'm like, dear Lord, now what? <laughs> and he came back and he, he just set a piece of paper face down on my desk. And then he said, come and see me when you're ready and just walked away. And I was like, this arrogant? <laughs> so I turned the piece of paper over and uh, surprisingly, it was actually, it was a Marine Corps Times article about how Marines were getting out and they had jobs in, in San Diego County uh, working for law enforcement agencies and it was the number one hiring uh, opportunity and, you know, being in, the, being in the Marine Corps is the best thing you could ever do and it kind of sold it to me and it's kind of funny now, you know, growing up not in California that the article uh, that he put on my desk is actually where that I'm working now. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. What a great story. Where did you deploy? I was working security forces for the Marine Corps, but I was actually on Naval Subbase Banger up in Washington almost my whole time. Which is then when you got out of the Marines, you tested for Seattle PD. Right. And what year would this be? That was 2005. So tell me about working with SPD? I loved working with SPD. I, it's sad to see what's going on now, but I made a lot of friends there. I worked uh, Rainier Valley 
uh, the south end of Seattle, and then I worked downtown the rest of my time there. I got to work patrol. I got to be a field training officer. I, I got to work undercover. I got to work with the bike teams and uh, doing some of the protest work up there. And, and it was just, you know, it's sad to see the, the way that the, some of the news agencies portray that agency. It's one of the most professional and well-trained police departments in the nation. The training that they have up there was phenomenal. So the people up there and, and the, the camaraderie and people coming into work and just doing the right thing was, I, I loved working for SPD. I don't miss the rain, but I do miss the people. <laughs> and to be clear, you, you didn't depart recently. You left. Yeah, almost a decade ago, yeah. And you left for warmer weather? <laughs> right. Yeah, we didn't have any, any family up there. I had just been stationed up there, and my, uh, my wife is from Southern California, so it was an easy pick to move back. You referenced the misperception of SPD. and the Why do you think there is such a misperception, how well they're trained and what a good agency they actually are? I don't, I don't know if it's just uh, the, the community or the news media or what it is, you know, I, I don't think it's, I just think right now it's just not popular to like the police either. You know, I see that with my own children in, in school. You know, my kids don't even say that they, uh, that what I do for a living, which is, it's, I mean, I understand it and I'm glad that they don't, but it's kind of sad that that's something that's going on nationwide. But, you know, it's easy for the news media to pick and choose one thing that happened and make the community upset. And, and I think that that's, it's about ratings. It's, you know, and the incidents that are reported. And then, of course, later people find out there's so much more to the story. And I was actually involved in an incident down here. And it just, it made me disgusted and and, and scared. There was a, a big fight in our bar district. And two of the people involved ended up being upset. They were in the military. They were going to get kicked out of the military for their actions. So one of the news agencies down here actually did a big news, news article on it. And in the background of the two news anchors talking was uh, this police officer kind of next to this person on the ground with his fist raised. And anybody looking at the picture would say that officer is about to beat that person. And I look and, and the officer is me. Wow. And it looks like I'm literally about to just punch this person. And what they had done is they had gotten some video, they froze it. And I actually, this person had been on top of me I rolled them off of me. I got them off of me. I rolled over. I flung my arm around and I handcuffed them. And that was all that happened. But as my arm flung over and I reached down to handcuff them, they froze it at that moment. And it, it was one of those, you look at that, but even me looking at the, the news article, I would have said, that, that cop is about to punch that man. And it never happened. You know, you, you watch the whole video, but it's just, it's so, it's so much more dramatic if you show it that way. You know, if you show this guy on top of a police officer trying to beat him up and trying to do all these things, that's not, that's not something that sells. What sells is the officer about to punch this man. So. How did that resolve? Was there public reaction? There was. Luckily, our our public information officer actually handled it very well. And then the district attorney's office, the prosecutor's office here also handled it very well. And I think their kind of response to the news media when they asked was, you know, we're not going to talk about it. It's an active case. It's uh, still pending in trial. But they said something like the, if you want to see the truth, come to court. Did they release the video? No, not, not at the I mean, I, I'm sure they probably released it later, but the most news media is not interested in showing that later. You know, people have forgotten about that incident. Because currently, I, I find a lot of agencies are releasing video right away. Yes, and that's 
that's happening now. That wasn't happening then. This was years ago. Uh, but yeah, you're right. In order to kind of get ahead of the, the rhetoric that's been going on, a lot of agencies have been, you know, as soon as they possibly can. And, you know, with respect to the families of people involved, they've been releasing it. That way we're not getting creamed in the media. And so, you know, your situation is a perfect example of what they show, selectively show. And when you see a video, you don't know what happened 30 seconds before. Exactly. And, and the video is looking one direction and, and you're looking in another. You know, we had an incident where my partner and I were detaining this guy. He was just going to get a citation, but he was lying about his name. And so I had go- walked over to the car to verify who he was. And during that time, my partner was walking with him and the guy was just walking next to him, but then ended up taking a swing and trying to hit my partner in the face. Because I was looking down, my body camera fi- footage did not show it. And because the guy was standing next to my partner, his body cameras did, didn't show it. And because of that, the prosecutor's office would not file charges against the guy trying to punch my partner. Because they said, well, you had two body cameras rolling and neither one of them captured the incident. So it's just very interesting that even if there are cameras, even if there are you know, stuff in the area, you can't, you can't capture everything. And just because it's not on camera doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. And so this was how long ago? Um, maybe five or six years ago. And so they would not take your word that this guy. Correct. Wow. Yeah. And that was one of the, that was when we got body cameras, I think most officers like body cameras. I think the officers like having it there. It's great evidence. It shows that we're doing the right thing. It's something that's a very good tool, but the problem with it has been, and the concern was from the very beginning that once we have them, we don't want it to be our word doesn't matter. You know, when I testified in court in 2005, if I said I saw this happen, most pol- most people believe that I saw that happen. But nowadays, if it's not on my body camera footage or there's not video footage of it, it's not the same. People don't believe that I saw it happen. It was like, well, you know, maybe you perceive that. No, I saw it. And do you think that's within just the past few years and this increasingly negative perception of police and people think that you're making things up to explain use of force. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people are under this impression that, you know, we're planting evidence or we're trying to cover our, our backs or, or trying to cover other officers. And that's just something that we don't see. But they don't believe that. Right. That must be very frustrating. It can be. Um, going back to Seattle. So you started there 2005? Yes. So you were in Seattle when Officer Timothy Brenton was killed? Yes. So for our listeners who don't know that story, can you tell me what happened? Timothy Brenton was working the East Precinct, which is the like the Capitol Hill area of Seattle, on a Halloween night. And he was a field training officer. He had a partner that day. They had made a traffic stop. They had pulled over the side of the road and were talking about it, which is pretty common in field training. And a man pulled up next to them and, and shot through his passenger window, killing uh, Tim Brenton and then also injuring his partner. And then not long after that, there was a, another shooting in an area south of Seattle in Lakewood. Right. Yeah. Four officers were killed at a coffee shop, uh, just sitting there having coffee as a squad. You know, it was early in the morning and somebody came in and killed all four, four of them. I mean, what's going on right now is extremely difficult for one reason, but that had to have been really difficult. Yeah, it's a it's a tough time. It's something that weighs on you all the time. You know, uh, my family uh, gives me grief for not wanting to take time off and 
But, you know, it's one of those things that when you're a police officer, you work a lot of holidays, you work a lot of events, you miss stuff. And um, I don't think I had or had a Halloween off prior to that ever. And I had taken that night off. Wow. Um, and I got a call. One of my old trainees, his dad was a homicide detective. And my old trainee called me. He's like, hey, are you working? And I said, no, I took today off. And then he proceeded to tell me what happened. And it was one of those, you know, you get self-guilt. You're like, if I was there, which, which you know, you look back. And if I was there, I could. I, I didn't even work the same area. I was working downtown at the time. But, you know, maybe I could have responded. Maybe I could have helped, you know. So it's one of those things that you never forget. You blame yourself, you know, and then every other holiday you take off after that. You just, you're hoping you don't get that same call. Right. And I should note, too, that these were two different killers. There's, this is not the same person who shot Officer Brenton and then shot the Lakewood officers. That's correct, yeah. As an officer, you must have felt hunted. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're feeling like you're being targeted. Both of those incidents were, they had nothing to do with the officers involved. It's, you know, it was just a random, I found a police car or I found guys sitting in a coffee shop. I know that the cops come here. So you do, you feel hunted and attacked. Often when there are officers killed like that, especially in ambush, the community tends to then rise up and show its support for law enforcement. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's amazing when that does happen, just to have the support from the community made the world a difference. You know, the, when those things do happen, you see the people that do support the police kind of actually speak up. And, and that's one of the things after being in law, law enforcement for 15 years now, I try to remind the younger people is, is that the vast majority of people do support law enforcement. It's just that you don't see it. But it is nice to have the support. It is sad when you seem like you only get that support when something terrible happens, though. Right. And then we've had recent ambush. The two officers in L.A. County, right? L.A. County Sheriff? Right. Could have very easily been killed in that ambush shooting. Yeah, I saw the video that to that. That's, uh, that's crazy. And then even years ago, there were the five officers in Dallas, which was essentially an ambush, right? Right. And, and you look at those incidents and it, it makes me proud because Lakewood, all of Lakewood PD still showed up work the, at work the next day. You know, after uh, Tim Brenton was killed, all of Seattle PD still showed up at work the next day. And that's, and, you know, all of Dallas PD still showed up. Nobody said, you know what, eh, it's too dangerous. I'm not going into work. That says something. Yeah, when I was working in Seattle, Officer Brenton wasn't the only line of duty death that we had. Right after I first got hired, we had a brand new officer that was was killed. Uh, Joselito Barber was killed in, in the same precinct that uh, Tim Brenton was killed. He was driving his car just through a, a regular intersection and a lady, you know, high on narcotics, uh, came through the intersection at a high rate of speed and T-boned him through a red light and, and killed him. And it, he had a beautiful family, a young fiance. And mm. and did the community also show their support at that time? Yeah, the community was very supportive of him and his family and our department uh, when that happened. Doesn't it irk you just a little that that's the only time they show their support? Yeah, it is. It can be very frustrating that that sometimes that's, you know, that's one of the, the only times you can get the community support at least shown. Were you in patrol the whole time you were in Seattle? Uh, except for the last two years, I ended up working undercover uh, narcotic stuff, prostitution stuff, just kind of wherever we were needed. And so did you have to look really grubby and... Yeah, you want to play the part. You want to play to whatever part you're looking for. So depending on where we were going and what we were doing, if you're going in a club or, you know, you're going to look a lot different than if you're buying heroin on the street. It's a fun experience. I never thought that I wanted to work undercover, but 
gosh, I think the first undercover operation I, I worked made me want to do that the rest of my career. Really? Why? It's just the, you know, you get to be somebody you're not. You get to uh, to go and see a, a different side of the area of work that you don't normally get to see. You know, when you're in a, a black and white or a blue police car, whatever color your agency has, you see from the inside of that police car, a different perspective of the world. Trust me, uh, the gangsters and the narcotics dealers, they know that the police car is coming three blocks before you get there. And it was uh, interesting being out there buying drugs and I had this lady come up to me, she's like, hey, come this way, I'm gonna move you over here. So she's like, hey, basically the cops are right over there, they're in this undercover car, this is who they're looking for, so let's go over here. And so it was just amazing that she had no idea that I was a, a undercover police officer and it just, it was one of those like, yes. <laughs> That seems really dangerous, though. Uh, it probably can be. I mean, we've, we definitely have had some incidents that, that you look back and you're like, wow, we could have done that better. Like what? Uh, just, you know, when we've had some undercover officers get robbed, you're dealing with, with people that don't think you're a police officer. And if they think that they can take your money or they can take your stuff, you have to think about everything when you're working undercover. Uh, you know, it's like maybe I watch too much TV, but the idea that you could be found out. Oh, yeah. And I think that's part of the part of the thrill of that is that, you know, you are essentially an actor at that point of time. And my family makes fun of me because I am a terrible liar. <laughs> but working undercover, they're like, I don't know how you do it. Because, you know, these people, you're, if you're buying cocaine, are you a cop? You know, you have to come up with an answer. It is interesting, hoping that at any point they don't find out who you are or remember you from somewhere else. And so when you're working undercover, you kind of have to consider that as well. So you never got found out or... No, not that I know of. Because <laughs> then if you're walking around in your normal life, I guess you wouldn't be in the same area. Yeah, not normally. I mean, that, and that's, you know, you have some, some agencies that require their law enforcement officers to live within the city that they, live, they work in. And, and I can understand a lot of that. But, but a lot of us don't want to live where we work because you are going to the same grocery store, the same gas station with the same people you arrested or whatever. So, you know, if, if you're not a police officer and you see cops that live outside the city, that's probably why, you know, they want to they have two separate lives. You want to go home to somewhere separate. But I do remember in Seattle, working downtown, I had stopped by like a 7-Eleven or a, a convenience store right after work. And at the time I was working undercover, I had a giant beard. I, you know, I was wearing a beanie. It was cold in Seattle, just terrible weather. And I remember stopping, I ran into 7-Eleven and I got a soda or something. And I walked back out to my, my personal car and there was a, like a transient outside begging for money. And, uh, and he just looked at me and said, have a good night, officer. Oh. And it was one of those like, what did he just say? You know, I, I couldn't believe, you know, at, in my, I think at the time I was driving like a 03 Mitsubishi Eclipse. How did in the world, but this guy just standing outside of 7-Eleven somehow knew, you know. Well, did you back into your parking space? I didn't. Because <laughs> <laughs> that could be the tip off. Exactly. You see uh, somebody back in and... Every officer I know always backs in. Fast forwarding now to where you are, how has it been with your current agency? Uh, it's been good. You know, the, the agency I work for now in Seattle, with the way they structure things with the way they train and with the way they want you to handle incidents are, are pretty similar. So I like where I work now. You know, I can tell you that the San Diego County community is much better about showing their support to law enforcement. We get waved at with all five fingers most of the time. We're pretty lucky. And we still have our fair share of, of people that don't like the police. And we have our share of people that protest at our, at our uh, you know, police facilities. But I've been pretty lucky. 
Have you had line of duty deaths there? We have. Have you? Yeah, we've had a few. Right before I actually was in the application process, San Diego PD had uh, Jeremy Henwood that was killed. He had uh, stopped at McDonald's and bought this little boy like an ice cream cone or something. And then and he pulled out and a guy ambushed him next from the car next to him as well. I remember that. But since then, we've had uh, a couple um, that, you know, have happened. Do you want to talk about it or no? Uh, no. No. One of them, I, you know, was one of the one of the first ones there, and it's just still too, too much. And how does it? How do you keep going when something like that happens? Um, I, you know, for me, it's just remembering why you're in it. You know, if if I was in it for the mon- money or I was in it for the fun, I'd be out 15 years ago. <laughs> um, you know, but you remember what you're doing, and and you see the fruits of your labor. You get to see the help that you're actually doing, even though, you know, sometimes it can be frustrating or sometimes you don't feel supported, but, but you still get to see it. And that's one of the things that just drives me to go in. I enjoy what I do. Yeah. And you feel like you make a difference? Yeah. You know, I think that the the country is making it hard to make a difference um, uh, lately. You know, you, I think the state of California is trying to make it hard for us to do uh, good in the community, but we're trying. I, I've read a little about what's going on in California what is your experience? Well, they're uh, they're letting everybody out. You know, you're not allowed to book people for a lot of crimes unless it's very serious. And if it's even if it is pretty serious, but uh, you know, they'll they'll just release them right away. And and you know, you have the community that will call you because you know the person's selling drugs on their corner, which brings in a whole group of other crime. I mean, because people are trying to scrounge up money for drugs, they're breaking into cars and, you know, all of these things are going on and they'll call you to, to solve that problem and and you will and then five minutes later that person's back or you have to just cite and release somebody, you know, and it's it's amazing to me that in Southern California you can steal a car and have a personal amount of meth on you and and uh, and steal a wallet on your way out and all three of those would be tickets, you know, non-bookable. It can be very frustrating for the community and, and their frustrations not understanding what's going on, come out on the police department. They think that we're not doing our job. Crime is going up and our neighborhoods aren't getting better. We're calling you and nothing's happening. And it's even people that have mental illness that are suicidal, they're so overwhelmed with the number of people into the facilities that you'll take somebody that's suicidal into a facility for mental help. And they're so overwhelmed that as soon as they say, oh, I'm not suicidal anymore, they just let them go. And then we've had them go home and and kill themselves and the family is mad at the police department. I look back at the girl that we talked about earlier that was in in court and said that drug court had changed her life. You know, but if I would have not been able to arrest her and book her, uh, would she have ever done that? And so it's frustrating when you see, you know, California three or four years ago, you know, they made all narcotics a misdemeanor. And while I, as a person can understand, you know, we don't want to make somebody with an addiction a felon, I can understand that, that, uh, that mindset and, and how it happens. But I also have seen a, a ton and ton of people in my career that have gotten well because it forced them to. And when we make, we take that option away, well, you can either go to rehab or you can just have this citation. Well, I'll take the citation, please. <laughs> Well, it seems to be something that is happening in a number of markets around the country. During the civil unrest that happened after the murder of George Floyd, did you experience that in your area? Yes. Yeah, we had we had a lot of protests. We had some looting and uh, things like that that happened here, not on the scale as it did in Seattle or uh, or in L.A. 
Portland. Yeah, Portland. Yeah, we had, but we had our fair share. We. And what was your reaction to what happened to George Floyd? I don't know anyone that approves of what happened to George Floyd. And that's the frustrating part for me is I don't know a law enforcement agent, uh, person, officer that I've worked with ever that has said, you know what? No, that was okay. I, I've ne- I haven't met anybody that has said that. So and now people are coming at us on, almost on a daily basis because of what happened to George Floyd. But none of us agree with what happened to George Floyd. All of us say that that was wrong. All of us are, are looking for justice to happen. So you've been on in law enforcement since 2005. Have you seen racism with the people you work with? I've seen it one time in 15 years. I, I worked with one officer, and I'll admit to that. I worked with one officer that I thought was a racist, uh, which is which is interesting based on who he was. I won't go into that. But, you know, in 15 years, that's the only time, you know, it people that the media wants to make it seem like it's a systemic problem and you have officers that are that are arresting people or, or using force against people or more force against people because of their race and I I'm just that doesn't happen. You know, so it's it's frustrating. So then you have black and brown people who are afraid of the police and say they are treated differently. So if that's your experience and that's their experience, how do we figure this out? You know, I, I think that having the, the conversation about why those things have happened is a, is a big deal. I remember as a young officer, I got a call. The person gave a very specific description of the person I was looking for. And that person was a, a black male and he was wearing a certain outfit and it was a, a high risk crime. You know, so when I stopped the guy, you know, I, I needed him to follow my instructions right away. I, I don't believe any force was used, but he wasn't happy with the abruptness and the, the way that I handled it. Afterwards, he was upset. And I, I spent two or three minutes afterwards and I just explained to him, hey, this is, the, this is what we got. This is the call we got. This is what I was doing. And this is why I approached you the way that I did. And at that moment, that made the world a difference with me and that man. He was able to understand why that happened. And I think that a lot of times with law enforcement, either you don't have the time or maybe people don't take the time or maybe some people don't want to listen. They're under the belief that you did this because of their race or because of whatever it is. And it's, but I think if we spend, you know, a couple minutes or if you think that you were wronged, I think that you should ask, you know, because there are a lot of times where maybe somebody treated you away and you didn't know, and maybe they didn't explain it, or, but maybe they didn't think it was an issue, you know, because for a law enforcement officer to come up to somebody, put handcuffs on them, figure out that that's not the right person and let them go is an everyday thing. For you, it's not, you know, and I think for us as law enforcement, we need to recognize that. You know, I think as law enforcement officers, I think that we really could do a better job. One of my supervisors had a phrase that always said, just give people two minutes. Everybody gets your two minutes. Like we're so busy in law enforcement. You log in and there's 45 calls holding and the dispatcher is like, you know, we need somebody to clear and go to this right now. And so you literally are just going from one call to the next. And then people sometimes don't feel like they're heard. And really what you're trying to do is the best you can, you know, to try to keep up with what's going on. You know, we're not hiring properly. Law enforcement is expected to do more. You're trying to keep up. And and so he always said, just give people two minutes. I really think that most officers, if you just ask them, hey, why did you do it that way? I think that most of, most people could sit down and have that conversation and, and end with the same understanding of, of what happened, you know, because a lot of times we don't know that we upset you. And the problem is once it happens to you, you think that that's why you're contacted. It just makes sense. I think that just give them two minutes is that's such a great idea, great guidance. And then as I've talked about with other officers, if we go through with this defunding in any market, you're not going to have those two minutes. No.
But you're right. If, you, if, we, if we start defunding the police, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get the opportunity. I, can't, I mean, I don't even know how you would do that. I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about this current climate, which I find so difficult, is when you mentioned your children not being able to tell people what you do for a living. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a scary time, you know, and people are afraid to say that they support the police, let alone your father's a, you know, a police officer or, or whatever. You know, people come over and we have to be careful who comes into our house, you know, because we have pictures of me and my squad or me and my family or when I graduated the academy in Seattle or whatever. And so it's, it's one of those things that you have to be careful who comes in your home. And, and there have actually been times where we've allowed people to come in our home, but we've actually removed those things off of our wall. To have to do that is, I mean, just sad. It's a difficult time to be a police officer. It's a difficult time to hire police officers. I've had 15 officers I personally know have worked with, have friends that have left law enforcement altogether in the last year. That's very sad. Putting it all together in all the years you've been in law enforcement, as difficult as it's been, the line of duty deaths, uh, the current environment, it, has it all been worth it? Yes. Yeah, I'd, I would do it all over again. As tough as it's been, it's, you know, it's still worth it. And I do believe that we've made a difference. As you said, the one person that told you you changed her life, you don't know how many more are out there. No, and that's somebody I arrested. Yeah, that's not somebody I came to help. That, you know, yeah, exactly. I don't know how many others are out there. I hope there are, I hope there are a lot more, you know. But. Well, it's been interesting. The people I've talked to, a lot of them have said that the people who come back to thank them are actually people who've been arrested. Right. Anything you want to cover that I haven't? I don't think so. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm thankful you are doing this, and I'm thankful that people listen. I, you know, giving the people a, an opportunity to discuss of you know what's going on and how they feel is a big deal, especially in today's big environment. Well, thank you, and thank you, Detective, for being on the podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate your time.